job, Trey. It's a way to make your mom proud on this uh, Mother's Day. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, we want to honor all of our mothers here this morning. Uh, we are um, so thrilled and excited that uh, we get to be a church family uh, that is representative of a whole lot of different um, mothers here. And so we want to honor everyone for a lot of the mothers here. This is your very first Mother's Day. We celebrate with you. Uh, there's been so many of us uh, who have close relationships with your kids that you are rejoicing right now, and uh, we rejoice with you. We are thrilled about that. And there's so many mothers that right now have had a, a disillusionment and disappointment and heartache and distance from their children, and we, we want to be a church that sits with you. Um, we want to be a church that mourns the loss of um, our children as well, knowing that it has such a profound impact. And so we celebrate all mothers today here in this uh, congregation and gathering. And so will you uh, join me as we pray uh, just and rejoice and thank God uh, for uh, the mothers in our lives. God, we thank you that uh, you're a God uh, that chose through your providential plan uh, to make a way for life. And you did that primarily through mothers. And so we're so thankful that they um, so often just get to play the Jesus role of uh, bringing new life, uh, bringing uh, to, to this earth the same way that Jesus makes us um, born again, alive again through his finished work on the cross. And so we, we celebrate uh, our mothers now. We, we thank you for those that are rejoicing in their motherhood. And we also... Um, I pray that you ask us to really empathize and enter into with those mothers that um, are mourning uh, because of this unique role that you have given, given them. Lord, we uh, thank you for the cross, that it is the hope um, of eternal life for all who believe. We thank you for the cross, that it can bring uh, estranged families and mothers and children all together under the unity of your cross, your blood, and your resurrection. And I pray that we rejoice in that now as we open up your word and as we talk about it, penetrate our hearts to the deepest level so that we're forever changed with a living faith. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, like Trey said, I hope you have turned your, into your Bibles in James chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 14. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter, and I said at the beginning of this, uh, controversy is afoot with James. It really is. Uh, there's a, a lot of different things that make James controversial, but I think probably the primary way that James is controversial is in this text today. What does it say in verse 24? Read along with me. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That is a controversial statement because it seems to be in direct contradiction to Romans chapter 3, verse 28, which says this. It says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. See the difference. James 24, you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. Well, which is it? Which, which is it? Are you on the Paul side or are you on the James side? In fact, let's do this. Let's separate in the room. 
All right, who wants to be on the Paul side? Who wants to be on the James side? No, no, let's not do that, all right? But here's the thing that we need to understand. Paul, uh, whenever he was talking about what he was talking about, uh, was talking about justified in a certain way, and James was talking about justified in a certain way. Remember I said earlier that Martin Luther uh, saw, whenever he read the book of James, he said it was a right straw epistle, uh, which is a way of saying, you know, this is total trash, or some, maybe it had something to do with the three little pigs, that's, you know, the foundation of the three little pigs, how straw, sticks, brick, you know, uh, this is the straw one that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. But, but this is the point that we need to try to look at right now. Whenever you see something in the Bible, Whenever you see something in the Bible that has an apparent contradiction, you have to go to what the Bible says about itself, and you, can, you need to see if you can harmonize it. So 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, All scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All right? So if all scripture is breathed out by God, including what Peter says in 2 Peter that Scripture is even what Paul wrote in the New Testament, saying that both Old and New Testament is all the words of God, then we need to, whenever we see something that has a controversial bent or it seems like it, there's an apparent contradiction, we need to pay attention to it and we need to dig in. Because whenever we dig into these apparent contradictions, what we're going to see is some of the most beautiful truths in all, all of the Bible. So before I even dig into that, you say, Cody, why, why even talk about these apparent contradictions? Because I, I cannot think of one thing that is more uh, under assault in our culture than this. Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? And you might be saying, Cody, I don't think about that a whole lot. That's because we're a little bit downstream of it. We're a little bit downstream of it. Meaning that these wars that have been fought about, can we trust the Bible? The culture doesn't want us to re-engage in this dialogue of can we trust the Bible? Because they've already been fought and they've already been won by the biblical conservatives long ago. And they keep on getting won over and over and over again. And those that begin to drift away, those that begin to drift away, there is no new argument there's no new argument to try to get us to discourage can we trust what the Word of God says. And it's plain understanding and it's plain reading. And, and let's just look at what Jesus says about the Word of God. Oftentimes, Jesus, whenever he would dig in and begin to argue with the Pharisees, you know what he would do? He would quote, he would quote the Old Testament verbatim and sometimes make a theological argument based on one word. One word, he would make a theological argument and say, this, thus saith the Lord right here in this point, therefore you can trust that the Bible is true. Jesus would make, you know what that means? It means that Jesus declared that every single word, not just every single thought for thought, every single word in the original language inspired by the Holy Spirit is, is uh, the exact very breathed out words of God. This is what Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us very plainly that sometimes you can go to one word and build an entire theological argument on it. So if Jesus viewed Scripture that way, really, should we be like, oh, you know, Jesus, that, that kind of backwoods Nazarene guy, can't really trust him. I don't even know what seminary he went to, right? 
uh, why, why should I trust him? No. Whenever the Lord says every single word in the, um, in the scriptures are exactly true and infallible um, and divinely inspired, then we should, that should be our trump card right there. If Jesus think, thinks that all of this is true, we should think all of it's true and therefore devote our lives to it. Devote our lives to it. Treat this for what it actually is, the very words of God. The very words of God. And so we should dig in. We should dig in whenever we see an apparent contradiction. An apparent contradiction. And this is what we see here in the book of James. And so you might be thinking to yourself, he's like, well, okay. You didn't resolve the argument. You just said that it's true. Both are true, right? And we're like, no, okay, well, let's dig in. Well, first, I think um, we should point out this. That in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, it tells of the Jerusalem council. You can go back and you can read it. And the whole point of this Jerusalem council is one of the early councils in, in church history. And it's recorded in the book of Acts, recorded in the word of God. And James was there and Paul was there. And one of the things that they did is they had Paul and Barnabas, who was the associate of Paul, present what the gospel that they were preaching throughout all the known world. And they came under the, the council, um, the authority of the apostles at the church of Jerusalem and said, this is what we've been teaching all the world, especially the Gentiles, of what salvation is and what the gospel is. And so they went and they presented it presented to everyone. And James, the author of this book that we're going through, replies in Acts chapter 15. And look what he says. After they presented and after they finished speaking, verse 13 says, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his namesake. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord along with the Gentiles who are called by my name. You see what, Pete, what James just said here? He says, everything that Paul just said is great and is good. He's taking he has been appointed as the apostle to the Gentiles to take the clarity of the gospel in a way that the Gentiles can understand the Jewish Messiah who is the Savior of the world. And James is saying, I am in full agreement right there. So, again, if we're in full agreement there, that the Bible says that they're in full agreement, how do we make sense? How do we make sense of the apparent contradiction right here? The apparent contradiction is... Uh, quite clearly this, that they're using the word justified in two different ways, in two different ways. We, we do this all the time uh, in our culture. In our culture, we, we use the same word, and we use it in two different ways all the time. Uh, for example, uh, March 7th, I remember because it was a couple of days after we moved here, March 7th, 2020, my little sister became engaged to her now husband, okay? And let me use the word engaged in a different way. Redeemer Church was very engaged in worship this morning as we gathered. 
Two totally different, same word, right? Both engage, but two totally different meanings or understandings. One means being betrothed to another to be ready for marriage, and the other one means they're ready for, uh, uh, excited about, engage, engage with what we're doing here as a, um, as a body of believers. In the same way, they're using the word justified differently. Again, I'm going to read it. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And we see that a person is justified by faith apart from works. So what Paul is saying here, and and he make this very clear, because this is kind of the hinge of the controversy. What Paul is delivering the word justified as being made right, being made right before God. How can you be made right before God? That is what he's saying whenever he's saying justified before God. How can you be saved? What makes you spotless and perfect standing before a holy God? That's justification. What makes you justified? That's what Paul is saying in in Romans chapter 3. And James is using justified in a slightly different way. In a slightly different way, he's saying you're justified to mean to prove the authenticity that you've been made right before God. He is talking about the evidence the evidence that you have been justified, the evidence that you have saving faith, the evidence that your faith is alive, that you've really been redeemed, that the Holy Spirit is actually living and dwelling within your heart. That's what James is talking about. And I said at the very beginning of this whole series that James has a lot of implied gospel in his book. Implied gospel. He's teaching, he's teaching and preaching and proclaiming his epistle to a group of people that have been rooted and saturated in the apostles' teaching. They are rooted and saturated in the idea that they are saved by grace through faith alone. And, and we see this earlier on in this chapter, and, and uh, we didn't really focus in on it last week, but it was earlier, uh, earlier in this chapter in, in verse 5. So move up a little bit, and let's read verse 5 together. Just, just to show and to prove that James is really communicating. He's really communicating that he believes that you're saved by grace through faith. James chapter 2, verse 5 says this. It says, My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? You see that word, heirs? What does it mean if you receive an inheritance. Did you earn an inheritance? Did you earn it? No. Someone else earned it on your behalf. Uh, you can't, there's no way, you can't go to uh, a place and say, hey, I, I've earned my inheritance now, give it to me. It was like, no, you eat, you, that is a birthright. That's something, you don't choose your family. That's one of the crazy things about the sovereignty of God, that we don't get to choose what family we're born into. And if you're born into a family that gives you an inheritance, you have zero control over that. And what is James saying right here? He says, we are heirs to the kingdom. We have been born into or born again into this kingdom of God that is not by earning, not by working our way. We are not justified by working our way into this. No, we're heirs. We're heirs that we got there by Jesus and Jesus alone. And so that's what James is saying. He, so again, this is his implied message that you have to make sure that you know and understand so that you don't get duped by every wind and wave of doctrine. 
so that you don't, someone doesn't come to you and say, look, the Bible contradicts itself, obviously. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 28, and look at James chapter 2, verse 24. Obviously, these two things are opposed to one another. They can't at the same time be true. They can't. And you say, no, 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 you're missing it. You're missing it. You don't understand. James has implied gospel texts. And, and what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to unfold and expound and explain the good news of our risen Savior. Okay? So they're both in agreement. They're both in agreement that this is what it's trying to say. Martin Luther summarized it later on in life after he kind of dissed it earlier on in his life. He kind of harmonized he harmonized the, the, uh, the two passages in his heart by, by saying this. And really, this is his protege that later wrote this, which was a summary of what Martin Luther taught. He says, it's clear that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. See what, it, see what that means? See what he's saying there? It's true that we are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith in the grace that saves is never just acting alone. That means that there's no way that you can be saved and have a, what James calls a dead faith. Never do anything. Never operate. Never think about. Never treasure Christ. If, if, that, if that describes you, if you think, I've raised my hand and I've walked an aisle at some point and I've been there, done that, been there, done that with the, the faith and been there, done that with the receiving the grace and your life is not transformed. Formed, it's not changed, there's not this progressive movement of holiness towards Christ, then James is saying that faith can't save you. It can't save you because it's not even faith. It's not even biblical faith. It's using something, it's something else. We have been duped by this thing. We have been duped by it. And so uh, I, I oftentimes give the example of this to explain what like, real faith looks like. Real faith looks like having an encounter with God, right? And I oftentimes talk about an 18-wheeler that runs me over, and if this is your first time here, you're like, well, why don't you go ahead and tell that? You know, for the sake of the congregation, I, I won't sh share the whole thing, but I'll share it in a way that James would probably have shared it. James, who loves to illustrate things, uh, we see that all throughout his book, uh, I can see him saying something like this. It's impossible to have an encounter with a chariot and not be permanently changed. And so James walking the street and then all of a sudden gets hit by a five-horse chariot. Boom. All right, run over trampled hooves, everything stuck in the mud, and he gets up. You're not the same as whenever you got hit by that thing, right? You're, you're totally different. You look different. You smell different. All right, everything about you is different whenever you get trampled by that chariot. Right? In the same way, what's bigger? A five-horse chariot or God? How can we say, how can we say that we've had an encounter with the living, crucified, resurrected one and not be permanently changed? How can we say that? Does that make any sense whatsoever? And that's James' point. That's James' point. James is trying to communicate that saving faith will always look differently. It will cause you to act differently. It will make you operate and think about things differently. Different from the world. Different from your peers. Different from those that don't profess Jesus. And here's the thing. If you profess Jesus and no one is looking at you and saying, what's up with you? This warning's for you. 
This warning is for you. Because James is saying, a faith that saves forever transforms. Forever transforms. And so James gives two examples of what dead faith looks like in this passage, and he gives two examples of what real faith or living faith looks like. What are those two examples of dead faith? Follow along with me in verse 19. 19, look what it says. It says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. Even the demons believe this. According to James, demon faith is equivalent to having really sound doctrine and respect for God. I'm going to say that again. All eyes on me. Demonic faith includes having perfectly sound doctrine and respect for God. That should cause us to pause. That should cause us to reflect. James is not playing around here. He's giving us this idea of what living faith really looks like. Because James is quoting the Shema, quoting to uh, this group of people where that God is one and that we should worship him and worship him alone. You know what he's saying? He's saying right theology does not save you. Right theology, if you have a certain list of doctrines that you can spout out at a drop of a hat based on some catechism or anything like that, that is not what animates living faith within your heart. It's not. There's, there's a way that we can deceive ourselves and have all the right answers, make a hundred on the multiple choice tests of our theology. That should, that should scare us a little bit. And I'm not trying to be scary for the sake of... I'm just trying to preach the text that's before us. To try to just explain what this is saying because it's a very serious statement. What's crazy about this is that demons know a whole lot about God. They know a whole lot about God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 33 and 34, uh, Jesus has an encounter with one of these demons. And look what it says. It says, in the synagogue there was a man with a spirit of, uncle of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons went to the best seminary the world has ever offered. They stood before the throne of God at one point, before they were cast down. And they understood, they were created by him, and they understood what all he was about. And until their rebellion, they worshiped for who knows how many scores of years. They worshiped because he was great and awesome and mighty, and they saw it firsthand. They have a very clear understanding of who this God is. And, it's, and James is trying to teach us that even if you have that type of faith, or even if you have that type of knowledge, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. A person that has saving faith will have right theology, but a person with right theology does not necessarily have saving faith. That's the point that he's trying to make right away. Right here, a person that has right theology will be saved, but a person with right theology does not necessarily mean that they are saved. And so this is a warning to test ourselves, as Paul says often, to see whether we are in the faith, to see whether we're in the faith. So, this is 
something that we need to focus in on and be really take seriously. Because the second thing he says is they don't just have right theology, they also shudder. They tremble at the truth of who he is. They tremble at it. They see and know and understand how mighty and awesome this God is, and they shudder. And so here's the point I want to make here. In this room, whenever you think about, what do you think about whenever you think about God? Do you think there's a certain list of rules and things that I need to do that God, that honors God and honors my parents and uh, is good for Wichita Falls culture over here? Uh, if I follow these principles, the, you know, the Proverbs are great over here, the wisdom literature, really, really good. I need to apply that. Are you doing all these religious things just to get God under your thumb so that God one day will just owe you? Or, because it, it, if you are, that's just shuddering. That's not living faith. That's just you shuddering at the right theology that you have in your mind and in your heart. And she's like, well, you know, I know I need to do this. I know I need to read my Bible. I know I need to pray. I, need to, I know I need to go to church, you know, every once in a while. I know I need to uh, tell people about him every once in a while, I guess. What's my quota, Cody? What's the bare minimum? What, what do I need to do? What's, what is the minimum? Just tell me... Uh, how I need to get in the gates. Get me through the gates and I'm good. All that is is shuddering. And according to James, that's demonic faith. It's demonic faith. You're hedging your bets. You're using God as insurance. That's what this type of faith is. Isn't this scary? And my, my fear as we think about our cultural moment, especially here in the Bible Belt, is if we don't have a real alive faith, if we don't have really alive churches, then we can get caught up in doing the right thing. We, we just get caught up in doing this or doing this religious thing or, you know, hitting the check boxes, giving a little money here, giving, giving a little money there, being, being excited about being a part of the cool new thing, and all that is is just religious shuddering. And it has nothing to do with what James would say is the opposite of dead faith. Alive faith. Alive faith. So, are we shuddering? Are we shuddering? Or, or do we have, we have alive faith? Because belief in Jesus, like the demons, has information, but it lacks Total and complete transformation. Now, this is progressive transformation. It's not transformation at the snap of the fingers because we, our sinful hearts would just fake it and pretend it. And then, if, and then after that, we uh, would never be able to repent of our sins because we have put up this veneer and this shield of this is who I am now. I'm the, the quickly transformed guy or girl who has been saved by Jesus. But what the Bible calls us to is continual transformation. Continual transformation over the course of a lifetime. And guess what? Jesus is the one in control of that. And it happens through faith in the gospel as well. So, this is kind of our cultural moment. This is our cultural moment that I'm afraid of. That I'm really fearful of and I'm thankful that James brings this to our attention especially for us in the Bible Belt. Do you have active living faith? 
Is it alive or are you just shuddering? Are you just trying to get God to make sure that he will owe you whenever your life comes to a conclusion? Principle two. Principle two. Faith that's dead also has no regard for the poor. James, can you ease up a little bit? <laughs> you know, like, can you just like, can you get, throw us a softball? Can you put it just on the tee so I can just knock this one out of the park? Why, why double down and, and do something that most middle class or upper, upper class people are just ashamed of? That they don't care for the poor um, the way that they feel like they need to. But look what he says. It says in verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? He says. He's saying transformational faith, a living faith. We'll look at people that are on the margins of society. We'll look at people that are broken. We'll look at people that are different than us. And we, I said this last week, we as the people of God move towards them instinctively. We move towards them. We move towards them. And we say, I was once you. I was once you. I need, I need to show you empathy. I need to show you care and concern. Um, a couple of years ago, I was a part of a church, and I kind of mentioned this, that uh, we had a really amazing, robust uh, benevolence fund where we were feeding about 180 families every single month, giving them a month's supply of food. And so we partnered with different food banks, and we were doing this. And a couple of years into it, we realized that we didn't know anyone's name. We didn't know anyone that we were serving's name. And so we, we, tra- we read a book by Steve Corbett. It's called When Helping Hurts. And it was a, it was a great book that talked about how really, uh, if you believe the gospel, um, there are poor people economically, and you understand that there's also everyone is poor spiritually as well. And so that's what kind of created this language to be able to grab onto here in, in James chapter 2 because I was able to see that, oh, what James is saying is I am the poor. I am the poor spiritually. And God, in his grace through Jesus, moved towards me whenever I was poor spiritually. And so part of the transformation that results in living faith is that I move towards the poor instinctively as well. You know what this means? You know what this means? It means that this can only be played out in the context of a local congregation. I, I, I love that churches are more mobile than they've ever been before and that there's actually a really robust and healthy church or house church movement in California and kind of in the, in the northwest. You should read about it. It's amazing. There's also uh, amazing things going on in house churches in Iran um, that uh, God is really working in. Um, in an amazing way. I'm really, really grateful for that. But here's the thing. Here in the Bible Belt, it's hard for us to, to do church just with our friends. You want to know why? Because we're showing partiality in a way that to where the poor, won't ju- we won't just be, not be able to serve the poor. The poor will never be able to find out where we are. If, if church is just done in this place with me and my friends that are in the same class as me and kind of the same mindset and the same life stage as me, then, then what James is talking about in James chapter 2 could never be played out within congregations. They could never be played out. And so we are the people of God that welcome, that welcome those that are disadvantaged and we try to move heaven and earth uh, to, to help them, not just spiritually but also physically.
because this is our God. This is what it means to be transformed by our God who moves towards us in the same way. Okay, so that was short. I talked a lot about it last week. Um, but th- that is another principle that your faith that you have is actually dead. This, this hard rock, this rock-hard callousness towards the poor. Uh, they just need to work harder. And rather than seeing yourself in them. Rather than seeing yourself in them. Okay? So what's the uh, two, uh, final two points, and then we'll get out of here. What does living faith look like? He gives two examples of living faith. And these are the examples of Rahab and Abraham. And these are the principles uh, that are laid out in in just a very simple uh, two words. The principles that they live out that that have living faith are courage and friendship. If you want to have a living faith, you will have courage and boldness for Jesus' sake. And if you have true living faith, you have friendship with God. Friendship with God. So, if you see in this passage, he gives a one-to-one comparison of living faith and dead faith with the idea of this hungry brother, right? The hungry brother, and you say to him, go, be warmed and filled, but do nothing to take care, uh, to take care of any of his needs. What good is that? In the same way, he's saying, if you have a statement of faith, over here, Jesus Christ died for my sins. He rose from the dead in three days. And it's just this manic rope memorization that has done nothing to your heart, but it's all right here. And he says, you don't have a risk-filled life for that knowledge to say, because of my transformation of my doctrinal statement, my whole life is different over here. He's saying, if you don't have the transformed life, what good is it? Absolutely, what good is it? This shows, this justifies your faith over here. Whenever you are transformed by living a life of risk, of living a life of courage, of saying, the people that are around me right now, they are not around me by accident. I am here on this earth to be salt and light to my community. And where, whoever my community is right now, guess what? God is put, has put you in their life right now to be salt and light. To risk for the sake of the knowledge of them getting the knowledge of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to think and reflect who is around me right now that needs to have a deeper, robust understanding of the person and work of Jesus. That's and then I promise you, right now, the Holy Spirit is calling you to risk, to make a plan to go and, uh, and share that. And if you say, Cody, that terrifies me. I have no idea how to do that. Join us as the body of Christ and let us walk with you arm in arm towards those that are far from him. Join us and let us coach, let us train, let us disciple, let us bear those burdens, let us pray for you so that you can be equipped and sent out for the glory of God. And that's the whole point of Rahab, right? What did Rahab do whenever she uh, had the spies with her? You remember what she did? What'd she do? One word. She tell the truth about where the spies were. He was like, "Oh, they're right over there, but they're protected by God. So uh, you probably can't. I wouldn't go over there if you, uh, if I were you, because you'd probably like disintegrate or something." No, she lied. She lied. Now, why didn't we go up? Why didn't the spy say, "No, no, no, Sister Rahab, Sister Rahab, no, we do not lie." 
Okay, that's one of the Ten Commandments. We do not lie uh, in front of it. You just go and tell uh, those good, good men where we are, and the Lord will protect us. That's not what happened. She lied. She lied. And what does the Bible say? She's a hero of the faith. She is a hero of the faith. You want to know why? Because she had a certain understanding about who God was. And she risked everything on the knowledge that she had about him. She risked everything. What does saving faith, what does living faith look like? Risk. Risk for the, for the knowledge of the Lord that we have. She is in the Hall of Fame. Rahab, a prostitute, is mentioned so much in the Bible. Why? Because she had very little knowledge, and she risked everything on that knowledge that she had. She had a living faith. She had a living faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, Abraham. Abraham, the man of faith. Let's read verse 22. Look what it says. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. He was called a friend of God. One of the most amazing verses in all the Bible comes in Genesis chapter 22. 22, verse 3. I'm going to read verse 2, and it says, The Lord spoke to him and says this, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. In verse 3, here's the amazing verse. So Abraham rose up early and went. No questions? Burn? uh, Burnt offering? Which means he would have put him on a pillar, of, on an altar of sticks, and would have burned him to the crisp. God says, do that? Do that? And Abraham says, yes, whatever you say. Your only son? Wow. You want to know why he did this? Look what James says. He was called a friend of God. He was called a friend of God. Abraham had a living faith that put his faith in the right posture towards God. God, whenever you say something, I do it. And sure, I don't understand all of it right now, and I, I, that sounds really, really bad, but I know the promises that you have made, and therefore, whenever you command me, I move in faith always. Living faith is reflexive obedience. Living faith is reflexive obedience. How do you apply this? Every, every day, right, this is what I've been trying to do all week. So every day whenever I wake up and begin my, my morning with prayer, I say, God, I trust you. Because I know the condition of my heart. Look at me. I know the condition of my heart and I know the condition of your heart. Is that right now, the hardest thing for you to do is trust God. Is to trust Jesus with the future of your life. To trust Jesus to get you through what you're going through right now. How do we, apl- how do we apply this? How do you, you want to be a friend of God? You trust your friends. There's a certain level of vulnerability. So pray that every single morning. God, I trust you. Lord, I trust you with, the future, with my future. Lead me. Lead me in the way that I should go. Lead me in the way that I should go. I remember um, for you teenagers in, in the room, uh, 
I'm sure that there's different times that you have looked at your parents and just been like, hey, I'm going out. Where are you going out? Uh, just with my friends. What are you doing? I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I was like, well, where are you going to go? Oh, we don't know that yet. Well, what are you going to do? Oh, again, don't, we, we don't know. I don't know. Well, don't you have any goals? You know, like we're trying to, we're tr- trying to parse out what are teenagers doing? They just want to be with their friends. They don't need to find something to do. They just want to be with their friends. They just want to be there in the same way. Living faith means you have a friendship with God. It's where you're not going and reading your Bible because it's something that you're supposed to be doing. You're going and reading your Bible because you delight to be in the presence of your God. You delight to be in the presence of Him. This is what living, active faith is calling us to. Because here's the reality. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. He went up, took his son, walked him up that hill, was about to slay him, and the Lord said this. He says, now, don't hurt. Don't hurt the boy. For now I know, for now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. Listen, you want to know why you should have friendship with Jesus? Because Jesus, God the Father, walked him up the hill of Calvary And he did not stay his hand. And he allowed him to die on the cross at Calvary. The same hills of Moriah. The exact same hills. So that, so that we can say, and you can say, and I can say, now we know that God loves us because he did not withhold his son, his only son from us. That's a reason to run towards God in friendship. He is calling you to the table. He is calling you to fellowship with him. Don't try to get God under your thumb. Run to him as a friend who has shown you great mercy, care. Because here's the reality. Is at the end of the day, because there's implied, implied gospel truths in the book of James. All James is really saying is he's saying, you worship the crucified, resurrected one, right? Is Jesus dead or is he alive? I was like, well, obviously he's alive. Then how can you have a dead faith? You're saying you worship this God? You say you worship him who's alive, seated at the right hand of the Father right now? Then guess what? You need to go. You need to go and be active with all. You need to go to him with courage. You need to go to him as a friend. And you need to say, God, because you're alive, I want my faith to be alive. Use me. Use me as salt and light to my community. Use me in salt and light where I go to work. Use me as salt and light to my, to my family. He's not wasting anything in your life. Redeemer, he's not wasting any of it. Lift up your eyes. Walk in fellowship and friendship with the crucified, resurrected one. That's my call, and that's my plea. Let's pray.